we'll turn back to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And um, the title today is Why Take the Gospel Seriously? And we're looking particularly at verses 20 to 21, the last two verses of that chapter. Let me read them again. Therefore we, uh, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, that is the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One writer says about that verse, verse 21, there is no more profound sentence in the whole of the Bible. And the Bible is a book where almost every sentence is profound. It's a book full of profound truth. But this uh, writer says, this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, there is no more profound sentence in the whole of the Bible. It's profound verse, it's also shocking. It's shocking when you read it slowly and think about what its real significance is. It's been my privilege to be able to return to theological studies uh, recently. It's been a great blessing to me to do that after 40 or so um, years. And I came across something when I was doing my recent assignment that Martin Luther wrote. It wasn't in one of his famous books. It wasn't one of the 95 theses that he wrote, uh, one of the, the hubs of the change that came about in the Reformation there uh, in Germany in the early 16th century. It was in a letter, and he wrote many pastoral letters to his flock. Uh, many of them were faced with uh, difficulties, uh, famine. Uh, many of them were faced with the reality of death and some were faced with persecution. Many were plagued with, with doubts. They were leaving the uh, Catholic system with its uh, superstition and priesthood and trading on people's fears and ignorance. And they had put their faith in the Jesus Christ that Luther and others were, were preaching. So Martin Luther is writing to help a doubting believer who was being tempted back into relying on his own goodness for acceptance with God. And that's the, the hub of the Reformation. How am I accepted before God? And Luther's teaching, the teaching of Calvin and others, is that Christ alone is your acceptance with God. There is nothing that you can present, nothing that you can offer to God the prayers of the saints will not help you. Mary will not help you. None of your own virtue will be of any use in the sight of a pure and holy God. This is what Luther writes then. He says, therefore, dear brother, learn Christ and him crucified. Learn to pray to him and despairing of yourself say, thou Lord Jesus, art my righteousness. And that was so far so good 
uh, for me. And I think Christians uh, are used to saying to Jesus or singing of him that he is our righteousness. It's what he has done and it's who he is that is the basis of our acceptance with God and our peace and our joy and our hope for the future and our hope of heaven. It's all in that one person, Jesus, and his perfect life and the offering of himself on Calvary. But Luther's whole sentence there is, Thou, Lord Jesus, art my righteousness, but I am thy sin. You are my righteousness, and when I believe, I take you to be my saviour, but I am thy sin. Christians uh, speak about the putting on of a robe of righteousness when we believe in Jesus, so that we are clothed in a way that's beautiful before God. We are in Christ. But the thought that, as it were, Jesus had had to put on a robe, that instead of being a robe of righteousness, was a robe which had all my sin on it, and that he was put to shame and disgrace for me. I'd never in 45 years of being a Christian. I'd never seen it put like that. And I had to tell somebody, so I told Jill and I, I sent a message to Andrew, look what Luther says. This is what he tells the doubting person to pray. Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. And he goes on, thou hast taken upon thyself what is mine and has given to me what is thine. Thou hast taken upon thyself what thou wast not, and hast given to me what I was not. Accordingly, you will find peace only in him, and only when you despair of yourself and your own works. Besides, you will learn from him that just as he has received you, so he has made your sins his own, and has made his righteousness yours. We'll see a bit more of that later this great exchange. I receive the righteousness of Jesus. In the sight of God, I am accounted as pure and holy as Jesus. I'm reckoned to have lived as perfect a life as he lived. And what does Jesus get in return? He gets my ugly thoughts, my bitternesses and my envy and my resentment and my coveting uh, all the filthy things that afflict our hearts, the inner sins, the outward sins. Christ was reckoned to be guilty of every single one of them on the cross. Why should you take this gospel um, seriously? Well, firstly, it is from God. And Paul is emphasizing this, um, and he's wanting to say, this is something we should hold on to, that when we think about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we shouldn't think, as uh, sometimes people are inclined to think, and sometimes people are taught, that the God of the Old Testament is radically different from the God of the New Testament. 
Testament. We're not to think that somehow God the Father is the stern taskmaster, the harsh, uncaring God, and it's only in Jesus that we find grace and softness. But no, our salvation wasn't accomplished, it was accomplished by the Son, but it was planned by the Father. It was God who initiated, God the Father who uh, initiated our salvation. The love that sent Jesus to the cross originates with the Father. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, equal in nature and power and glory, all of them made of, as it were, consisting of love. And so Paul emphasized in verse 18, all this, in other words, the gospel, the new life in Jesus, all this is from God. When Jesus came, he wasn't defying God the Father. He was coming at the behest of God the Father. He was sent by the Father. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Everything is from God, God the creator, uh, the God who has made us, and the God from whom we, as a race of human beings, have been alienated and separated by sin from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned. And immediately, at that first act of disobedience, comes shame and separation. And if anything was to be done with helpless man separated by a vast gulf from a holy God, if anything is to be done, it is God who must intervene. It was God who showed Noah how to build the ark. It was God who commanded him and showed him a way of safety. It was God who dismissed the people who were trying to build a tower, the Tower of Babel, up to heaven and confuse their languages. No, it isn't from the earth that you will find salvation. It's from above. It's from heaven. It's interesting when you uh, read the prophecy of Isaiah, perhaps the most well-known part of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, and it's very clear there that it is God the Father who is responsible for Jesus coming into the world. It's God the Father who is active. And so, Isaiah 53 and verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him. So God the Father laying on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the will of God. So the Father, the Son, acting in perfect harmony. And so you have, in the words of our text, He, God the Father, made Him, the Son, 
to be sin for us. And it means that it was in the purpose and the mind of God from all eternity. It was the subject of the fellowship and the discussions and the deliberations between Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity. And it means then that when you hear the gospel, it is God speaking, the true and the living God. When you have a message on your phone, whether it's a text or a WhatsApp or a voicemail, um, you can often decide, can't you? You can ignore it. Uh, you might wait until another time. It's not urgent. You can delete it, pretend you haven't received it. You cannot do that with God. The gospel is the gospel of God. It is from God. And you must take the gospel seriously. It isn't that it's one of many messages that can lead you to heaven or can lead you uh, to salvation. It's unique. It's exclusive. God has not appointed any other way of salvation. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And secondly, why should you take uh, this message, the gospel, seriously? Not only is it from God, but it's from God through men. This is Paul's burden here, that it is God making the appeal. It's God who initiates everything. It was in God's mind to send the Son to be the Savior of the world. But how is the message actually preached? How do people hear it? Well, Paul says, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. An ambassador represents. An ambassador conveys the wishes and the will of their master, their home uh, government or monarch. And so Paul says we're representing God. We're representing Christ. When God appeals to you, it is through us. It may not be a preacher. It may be uh, a Christian in any uh, walk of life, an ambassador representing a higher authority, holding a sacred trust. And says Paul, it's an urgent appeal. We implore you. He's almost saying, we beg you. I don't care how foolish you think I am. I don't care how foolish the world thinks this whole gospel is. I don't care what the Jews or the Greeks make of what I'm preaching. I'm compelled by the love of Christ, verse 14. If you know Andrew, uh, the pastor of this church at all, you will know that his heart, reflecting his master, is a heart that longs for people to be reconciled to God. And every Sunday he stands here to preach and to appeal. And he's doing so not from himself. He's doing so on behalf of his master. He is an ambassador 
for Christ. So the message that he has made up, he has a sacred trust, and he has staked his very life. Indeed, as a, a minister of the gospel, he has staked his livelihood on the reality and the truth and the power of the gospel. He longs for people to be saved, and so does every preacher worth their salt. Paul was sometimes overtaken by a desire for those who would not believe. And he said, almost, not quite, but almost, I would, I'd give away my own salvation if they would be saved. The gospel preacher doesn't stand on ceremony. It's almost as though Andrew would be holding on to your ankles as you left the church, having not believed in Christ, having rejected him again, and you'd have to leave dragging Andrew at your ankles, trying to persuade, appealing to you again. God appeals to you. He has done what it takes to bring reconciliation. That's the great word, isn't it, in the lead-up to our text. Through Christ reconciling us to himself, giving us the ministry of reconciliation. There's a, an argument. God has a case against us. There are conflicting demands. and We know that it can be very difficult for two sides in a dispute to find a resolution. The last few months have been plagued with strikes, haven't they, in the NHS, strikes amongst the um, workers on the railways and the trains, uh, many others, been a lot of uh, disputes. And we always hear about talks, and we hear about um, a 10% figure and a 5% figure. And this is what management and government are offering. This is what the workers are demanding. Well, there has to be give and take. There may be harsh words on each side. But behind the scenes, there are talks going on. There's give and take. And eventually, maybe a long time, but eventually, there will be a way through. The reconciliation that is necessary between God and man is of a completely different order. It is not a case in the human model of simply saying to God, well, you must give a bit, you must yield, you must compromise, because that's the way that people tend to approach this. Okay, what's the problem? Well, man is a sinner, God is holy. Well, surely God could tone down his holiness somewhat. And surely man isn't so bad as the Bible really says. Is man really dead in trespasses and sins? Is it really true, as the Old and New Testament say, that there is none who does good? No, not one? Surely there's a bit of goodness that can be encouraged. And surely there's a bit of give on that side, and then a bit of give on God's side, and before you know it, the two can be reconciled. There's a far better way, a far better way, because in a typical 
uh, resolution of dispute in the world, neither side really gets what they want. Neither side is really happy. The demands of neither side have really been met. It's a sort of a fudge. What God did was something that completely satisfies his own demands, the demands of his character and his justice, and completely and wonderfully meets every need of man's side. So thirdly, the gospel is from God. It's from God through men, through ambassadors who implore you. But it's from God through men. It's about Jesus Christ. This is how God brings about the reconciliation. This is what makes the gospel not an empty message, but a full message, a message that has substance. Let's consider who, first of all. Our text says that this is the one who knew no sin. Well, Jesus knew what sin was. Of course, he was brought up that way. He was brought up with the teachers of the law. He was brought up with Mary and Joseph. He would have known that, that sin was the breaking of the law. But he was not familiar with sin. He was not familiar with it as we are. We can be so indignant, can't we, if we're criticised, if someone exposes a fault in us, and we're very quick to rise up and to defend ourselves or to complain. But we know that even if that charge is unfair, there are many more that could be exposed in us. He knew no sin. He was a real human being made as we are, yet without sin. There's no consciousness in Jesus of his having sinned in the past. And so no regret or shame. There's no plans in the mind and the heart of Jesus to sin in the future. There's no desire in him to sin in the present. So he was entirely without the shame, the regret, the burdens that we bring on ourselves by choosing to sin. He was unstained. He knew no sin. We have the verdict of the Father, don't we, at his baptism and at his transfiguration. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There was not a spot, not a blemish in him. It was the verdict of those who saw him at the cross. One of the thieves uh, on the left and the right uh, said to the other one, we are here because of what we have done. This, this is justice for us. But this man, the man in the middle, has done nothing wrong. Certainly this was a righteous man, one of the, the Roman soldiers, the centurion said. It was the verdict of Jesus himself 
without any trace of pride he he knew himself to be free of sin john 8:46 which of you will convict me of sin he knew no sin peter says there was no guile there was no deceit found in his mouth It's easy enough, isn't it, to understand that Jesus knew no sin before he came into the world. We can easily believe that in heaven, uh, Jesus was sinless. But what Paul is saying here is that Jesus knew no sin in his earthly life, surrounded by all the pressures that surround us, surrounded by temptation, subject to being tired, um, provoked as we often are, thirsty, all the pressures that come to us, busy, tempted as we are, yet without sin. And let's consider not only who, but where. This event, this transaction, that gives reality to the gospel. Where does it happen? There are many who will say, well, of course, it's all subjective. It's all in your head, and that's fine for you, and it's real for you. But the beauty and the wonder of the gospel is that it is all happening it's all done outside ourselves we don't rely on our own understanding or our own feelings it is not based on our experience it happened outside ourselves it was done outside the city of jerusalem it was done at the cross that's where jesus was made sin for us. That's where Jesus was treated as a wrongdoer, a troublemaker, a blasphemer. He was treated as a sinner by the authorities. Although there were one or two that had their doubts about whether he really was as guilty as he was charged. But crucially, it's God the Father who is treating him as a sinner. It is God the Father who is treating Jesus, his own son, as though he was guilty of all our sins. They're all put on his shoulder. It's hard to think about that, isn't it? That Jesus was reckoned to have broken all the commandments. He was reckoned to have committed adultery. He was reckoned to be a murderer. He was reckoned to have lied. He was reckoned to have broken the Lord's day, uh, the Sabbath. He was reckoned to have worshipped idols. All those Ten Commandments and more and all besides, every single respect in which it was possible to be a sinner, Jesus was reckoned to be so. Our open sins... The sins that we try to forget are hidden, respectable sins. All those were heaped upon him, one man. 
bearing the sin of many. It happened in history. The great transaction was done. And let's consider what, who, where, and what. An invisible but real transaction takes place. We receive his righteousness. What is righteousness? We know that it means holiness. It means in its root to be straight, to be absolutely straight, straight as a die. It means to be upright, perpendicular. We use the word, and it's a connected word in the New Testament, the word justified to mean according to a straight line. You see that in the text uh, on a page of type. It can be justified to the left, it can be justified to the right. Absolutely straight, conformity to a standard. God is the standard expressed in his law and says scripture, we have all fallen short of his glory. The page of type is a bit of a mess, it's all over the place. But in him, our text says, we become righteousness of God. So the straightness, the righteousness of Jesus, his conformity to that straight line is made ours. His perfection, his complete obedience, his passive obedience, avoiding the things that were forbidden, his active obedience, doing the things that were commanded, that becomes ours. Jesus was the robe of the righteousness of God. He showed what the righteousness of God is. And we are given that. People wear clothes for different reasons, don't they? Uh, there's such a thing as power dressing, people dressing to show who's the boss, who's in charge. Back in the 80s, you had shoulder pads uh, to show uh, that somebody was or thought of themselves as being a powerful person. People dress to reflect their wealth. People dress to reflect a trend or who they want to identify with. People dress for status, for aspiration. People can wear items on their clothes, can't they, to display something about themselves. You can have badges if you're in the scouts or the guides uh, to reflect an achievement. Military uh, personnel wear medals to signify uh, their achievements and perhaps their bravery. Coronation was full of uh, all that regalia, wasn't it? People uh, displaying who they were. You almost had to have a, a handbook to look through and to recognize uh, what does that mean? What does that signify? I would imagine wearing a garment that had all your sins on it instead of medals or badges that you hope people will approve of, that instead of that, you had a garment that just had all your, your sins on it. 
and that all your innermost thoughts were revealed somehow, that there was a transcript of the conversations that you've had of which you're ashamed. Imagine that was all on public display. But the beauty of the gospel is that we give that over, we divest ourselves of uh, sin and shame, and Christ takes that on himself. That was what happened at the cross. And we take his righteousness upon ourselves, and God is pleased. It isn't just that he looks at us and says, correct. He looks at us and there's a, a beauty about who we are and what we are in Christ. He takes delight in us. So here's the appeal. God appealing through us, through me, through Andrew, through any preacher, any Christian. Be reconciled to God. How is that possible? It's possible because of two little words. There in the very middle of verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him. To paraphrase somebody famous, never in the field of human literature was so much work done by such tiny words. In him. In Christ. That's the essence of the believer. We're in him. All the work has been done. That's the glory of what the Reformation preachers were saying. All the work has been done. You simply, as you hear the gospel appeal, you simply believe. You simply take Jesus to yourself in all that he has done for you. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's possible. It's essential. Here's the appeal. God desires it. He's not a reluctant God. His arm is not being twisted by Jesus, the Son. God in his fullness, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit appeals, come, put yourself in him. Everything then that he did is yours. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we do thank you for <clears throat> the gospel invitation. We thank you, Lord, that uh, the gospel answers our deepest need. Father, we thank you that the blood of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, atones for sin. We thank you that Jesus died as one man in the place of many. We thank you that by one man's obedience, many are counted righteous. Lord, we thank you for the love that brought uh, our Savior to the world. We thank you for the love that impelled him even to that lowest place of humiliation 
at the cross. We thank you that he willingly took our sins. And not only do we find our sins removed and forgiven as far as the east is from the west, but we find that all that Jesus lived out, his obedience and the beauty of his life is given uh, to us. Father, we pray that these things will imprint themselves on our minds and that we may freely uh, come to Jesus, knowing that in him uh, all is uh, ours. Hear us then, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.